Oh, uh, well, what I'm wearing now is um, some linen pantaloons, uh, small black dress pumps, white stockings, floral waistcoat, floral cravat, frilled shirt, and a white linen tailcoat with a straw top hat. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, linen pantaloons, floral waistcoat, straw top hat? Let me make this a bit easier for you. Every single day, Zach Pinsent wears Regency-style clothing. You know, Mr. Knightley from Emma, Mr. Darcy from Pride and Prejudice, Zach Pinsent from Brighton. This is The Passion Economy. I'm Adam Davidson. And today, a lesson in passion. Zach doesn't have all the answers. He's young. He doesn't know exactly how to grow his business. He doesn't have employees yet. But man, has he got passion. And he's well on his way to spinning that passion into something bigger. Did you make all of that? Uh, yeah, well, well, I made everything apart from hat and shoes. And that's why we're talking to Zach today, because that's his business. He is a bespoke period tailor. He makes historically accurate clothing, typically from the Regency period, like early 1800s. But he can do it all from the 1660s to the end of the 19th century. And when I say historically accurate, I mean it. Zach only uses fabrics that would have been available in the garment's era of origin. He uses drafting and pattern techniques from original sources and rips apart old garments to get as close to historically accurate as possible. He even makes the clothes sitting on his sewing table, the way that tailors used to sit on top of the table in the window to get the most sunlight. I came across Zach in a now viral BBC video, and at first I thought, Come on, this is just some gimmick. He's some kid trying to get attention. But just watching him and the passion, the the vulnerability and excitement he uses when talking about period clothing makes you realize this isn't a trick. This is Zach's life. This is who he is. It's not something he does every now and then, like when a BBC crew is filming him. This is all he wears. Zach ceremoniously burned his last pair of jeans at 14. He is committed to the lifestyle. And if you remember what life was like when you were 14, no, it did not go easily in high school. So let's dive in. How exactly did a kid become an expert in Regency-style clothing? And why does he wear it every day? How did it become a business? Well, It started in the British beach town of Brighton. If we're keeping with the theme, Brighton is where the impish Lydia Bennett elopes with Mr. George Wickham, the lowly militia officer up to no good in Pride and Prejudice. I'm I'm reading this script and realizing that Lena, our producer, seems to be really obsessed with Austin. Anyhow, back to Brighton. I'm Brighton born and bred, which if you ask anyone around here is actually quite a rarity because um, people either move to Brighton or move from Brighton. It's one of those places, it's very um, nomadic in that sense. My parents have done everything really. So my dad's been a carpenter, mechanic, roofer, tiler, everything you can think of. And then they set up a care home business looking after the elderly and people with mental health problems. 
so it started off actually from their front room with my mum and dad looking after sort of their parents and then it built up because there was this sort of gap in the market in actual sort of affordable care and then they built up care homes to the point that now they've got um, a large company sort of doing it. So his parents went from working class to starting their own successful business. Zach grew up surrounded by their entrepreneurial spirit. But more importantly, his parents gave him room to be, well, just to be, to be Zach Pinson. Yeah, my father's been massively instrumental and incredibly accepting. I mean, both my parents have, of course. You know, my dad took me to my first gay club, you know, and went out partying to like four in the morning. You know, it's wonderful sort of having that whole sort of accepting thing, you know, and simply because putting it this way, my dad was the black sheep of his family, but he's the most normal one in ours. And he's always (laughs) encouraged every eccentricity and every quirk um, and sort of gone, it's fine, it's okay. And given us that space and that freedom to be ourselves. So, So I can't possibly begin to thank my parents enough. Those quirks and eccentricities, that would be the dressing up in period clothing. Because what young kid doesn't sort of love dressing up? And it's just that uh, my parents just never really told me to stop. They just ended up encouraging it. (laughs) So, yeah. So let's talk about you dressing up, because that is quite literally what you do for a living. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. You have devoted your life to dressing up. (laughs) You know, this and everything I'm doing now didn't happen overnight. And it started from that interest of, I don't like what people are wearing now. I have no draw to it. I have no excitement over it. And that's pretty much always been the case. I've never looked at someone in a magazine or or some fashion person or idol with what they're wearing gone, I want that. It's been a case of, it's not very fun, is it? You know, it's not very, it's not very me. It's very them. Great. Fantastic. It's just not very me. Um, so started off with the whole Victorian Edwardian thing. Uh, from the 1890s or, you know, 1910s, which is technically Edwardian. So it was more Edwardian Victorian that I started off wearing. And the reason I start off with that is because you could get original pieces and things like that in vintage shops and things in Brighton or in London. You know, it was very much more accessible. Now it's gotten to a point where vintage has become so trendy that it's priced anyone out of it, really. And the vintage shops that were around Brighton, they've sort of gone now, unfortunately. Um, And the way I sort of learned sewing from that was just repairing things. It started off just having to repair stuff or I'd buy something that wasn't in great condition, like the lining had fallen apart or whatever. So I had to then put that back in. And it was just that slow process of just learning and watching YouTube videos and looking through old sewing manuals, that sort of thing, and just wondering how on earth do I do this? And one of my first sort of overcoats at school was actually a Victorian frock coat that I'd replaced the lining in. And I remember I was told off one day because I was going up to lunch, waiting in the queue, and I still had the tacking stitches on the silk lapels in place on one side and I hadn't noticed. (laughs) I mean, for me, that's hilarious. And people are going, what's tacking stitches? Zach is so self-assured. It is inspiring. Remember what this kid was doing. He was at a British boarding school, dressing in Edwardian period clothing, making his own suit jackets, carrying around a pocket watch, 
teaching himself to sew, looking like a rarefied peaky blinder. I've always been sort of acutely aware that other people thought it was strange. But then again, you know, it's that glib modern thing of haters are going to hate, aren't they? But it was not easy. It wasn't exactly accepted by my peers at the time because it was seen as different and weird as opposed to edgy and cool. That's what I was wondering because I could see it when I think back to my high school. I could see it going oh, either yeah, way. Oh, yeah, no, no. School was hell. Absolute hell. <laughs> Especially being, um, you know, an out gay kid as well. You know, it was um, very, very difficult. You know, you just sort of have to either cry about it or just get on with it. And that's what he did. He got on with it and turned this quirk, this thing his peers tortured him for, into a business. A business that fulfills him creatively. A business that connects him with people and customers who like the same kinds of things as he does. Though there were a few twists and turns along the way. He went to university to study art history. That didn't work out. So he moved back home and he keeps his business small. He makes commissioned pieces for people here and there. He continues to build his own wardrobe. He gets invited to make clothing for themed balls and military reenactments. The whole time, he's just getting better and better at tailoring these garments, learning more and more. And this is one of the things I like so much about Zach. There's a kind of academic aspect to what he does that makes his work truly special. Whilst doing all of this, I was having to do so much research and working out how things went together, what original garments looked like, how they were put together. And I'm still learning, you know, and that process doesn't stop. And that's a comforting thing that I've been told by, you know, modern bespoke tailors saying that you never really stop learning. You know, there's always like a new way of doing something or something you hadn't thought of. That's because it's done with your hands and it's something practical. So it went from that whole thing of making a few things for friends and then realizing, okay, maybe I can make it into a business, aka I've got no other choice because university didn't work out. So had to basically find something. And so I was sort of forced into turning my passion into a business or into something that could make me a bit of money. And then it took off a bit. Exactly how it took off? That's after the break. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Two years ago, I was sitting down with dad, bit of a heart to heart talking about, is this working as a business? And I was thinking, oh, it, it, it's really not. It's almost like a bit of a vanity project, making things myself and then the occasional client. It, you know, there weren't really enough people and it was this very tricky thing of going, yeah, but people that want my stuff are over in America, how's that going to work? 
And then this program was done on Jane Austen called My Friend Jane. And that sort of propelled the Instagram a little bit and people were going, oh, I'd like this. And then I was invited to America to do a talk. And I'm thinking, gosh, who am I? Who am I to talk to people about this stuff? You know, when I'm still learning, I don't feel like I'm in a position to lecture people about stuff. But then you start talking to people and, and they go, no, you do actually know more than you think you know. It's like, okay, cool. But I still wouldn't say I'm an expert. You know, I'm still very much learning. I'm only 25. Now, even if he's young and still learning and he doesn't always feel like an expert, he really is. How many people in the world know in their fingers exactly how a garment from that period was put together? And a lot of people have begun to notice Zach is a specialized kind of historian. For some context, I want to walk you through just how involved, how intimate Zach's business is. He's a bespoke tailor. He only uses material that would have been available when those particular clothes were in style. So he has to know a lot about those clothes and what was available back then. He has to track down textiles. He's making clothes perfectly suited for one unique customer at a time. And that requires many in-person fittings. Normally it's measuring, thank you, goodbye, make a toile, and then hello, fit them for that. A toile is that like plain muslin version, so it's a cheap to cut it and you don't have to... Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But but it's also testing out the pattern systems because these yeah. pattern systems are over 200 years old and they're not exactly made for modern people in the same way. So they don't necessarily always work. Because we're all um, fatter. So, no, 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 no. It's really not that. It's really the proportions are different. We're, you know, our proportions have changed and we don't stand in the same way either. So because we don't stand the same way, it means that it does something interesting to shoulder seams and stuff. So they have to be adapted. Oh, that's so um, interesting. You know, yeah. when we're growing up, we're eating a lot more meat and our mothers, when we're in, you know, our stomachs and everything, are eating more meat. So we're broader. And, you know, we're generally a much more well-fed population. We're a lazier population as well. So, yeah, there are sort of other scales that come into it. But it's just a case of that's my learning process as well, where I'm having to adapt these 200-year-old systems to then create my own way of drafting for modern people, but with it being with the same aesthetics and same silhouettes as were appropriate for the 18th and 19th centuries. You know, right now, the typical American has a pretty narrow range. Obviously, we're free to explore, but but the vast majority of Americans, are, you know, business suits are, you know, one of three colors and one of three patterns and business shoes are one of three patterns. You know, it's fairly minimal and some people choose to, mm-hmm. to go a little brighter and more interesting and there's no major cost to it, but we just effectively have established this code. What range of choices would I have had, say, in... I don't know, 1807 or whatever. Well, I'm quite pleased you actually chose 1807 there. Uh, So colour wasn't so much gendered. It was about what was expensive and what was showing your wealth and what was showing whether you were up to date with fashion and trends, that sort of thing. So, for example, think of a really thick, heavy pile silk velvet that's bright orange with black polka dots. That is a waistcoat fabric sample from 1807. Wow. That's not exactly quiet, is it? No, that'd be pretty um, shocking to wear you, today. If I chose to wear that, people well, would Well, exactly, like, yeah. exactly. But what annoys me a bit is that do you ever see styles like that? The extremes, well, not even extremes, like that's in a just a fabric sample book. Where is that representation in period dramas? Right. So if I went to 
I mean, not even a fancy ball. If I was walking in Mayfair in 1807, I'd see a huge range of colors and silhouettes. Yeah, you'd see a larger range of colors and silhouettes, but menswear, you just had a much larger range and possibility to express yourself because everything was bespoke. You couldn't buy anything off the rack. So you could either go into a tailor's going, oh, I want the same thing that Lord, Lord Montgomery is wearing or whatever, because you want to just follow his trend or follow what a particular set of people are doing because you want to. Um, or you can go and sort of go, oh, I like the look of that sort of pink shag you've got there. Uh, pink shag being a really thick, heavy silk velvet. Oh, I like the look of that pink shag. Do you have enough for a coat? Well, we've got enough for a waistcoat, sir. And it's like, well, and then you'd have that done. There was more room for personality because you could choose every aspect of it. And then there are things that sort of change things about because you've got to remember that these are the young people of the day. The Regency fashions are the fashions of young people. And you've got to remember how society changed because you've had the American Revolution, you've had the French Revolution, you've had the monarchy sort of shaking a little bit. You've got this whole underswell of the working classes and people being able to have the right to vote and things like that. You've got people suddenly having agency to do things. And then and you also then have Nouveau Riche of, for the first real time as a major class. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like you, formerly, you've got the real rising middle classes yeah. who are then trying to establish themselves and they're not quite sure how to do it and they go, okay, well, I'll go with these fancy fabrics rather than like a old landed gentry lord that's got a family lineage going back a thousand years might go, oh, I'm just going to be a bit more pared down because I don't need to be a peacock. But then again, that wouldn't stop them from being a peacock either. That's the passion economy in a nutshell, right? Zach knows his stuff. He knows it because he spent so much time studying it. And when you buy a garment from him, you are buying not just the physical thing. You're buying all that time he spent learning and, and perfecting his skill. And for Zach, it's a good business because... He's making money at it, but it's also something he would do for free. He loves doing this, so he has so much energy going into it. It's hard to imagine Zach in any other job in the world because he'd just be waiting for the hours that he could get home and sew more Regency clothing. And the other passion economy element to this is that it's so intimate. There's sort of a phrase I've said a lot of times on this show that the passion economy is taking the best of the 19th century and combining it with the best of the 20th century. And this has got to be the most exact example of that. Back in the 19th century, the 18th century, for most of human history, clothes were made by hand by someone you knew, maybe yourself or your mom or a tailor who lived down the street. And that's exactly what Zach is doing. He's making everything by hand for a specific customer according to that customer's really specific and intimate needs. Now, he's able to reach customers all over the world, and he's able to access even the most obscure materials because of the 20th century. The 20th century was all about mass production, global trade, people and companies getting better and better at making exactly the same sort of blunt thing for everybody. And with clothing, that's particularly striking. Before the 
industrial revolution, there was no such thing as standard sizes. There weren't even t-shirts and jeans and these like basic clothing that we know today that were designed precisely because they are mass producible. What Zach has done is he's figured out how to take advantage of the efficiencies of the 20th century, along with telecommunications and global trade that allow him to reach customers all over the world, but serve them with this truly pre-industrial, incredibly intimate product. He's been able to match his passion to customers who want what he can uniquely provide. After the break, who are these customers? That's coming up. So who are your customers? Uh, do you have customers who are like you? They dress this way every day? Uh, well, I've got clients that are saying, I love what you do, da-da-da-da-da. I now want to dress differently every day. You know, it's incredibly humbling and completely flabbergasting that people are finding me such a quote-unquote inspiration for them to live out their lives. But for some people, some of them are historical reenactors. They might be military reenactors. They might be civilian living history reenactors. Or they might be people that go along to historical balls and just want something fancy to wear for that sort of thing. And then there are some people, so there's a couple I'm working with now, who want me to make their wedding outfits with the wedding dress. They're making the most amazing sheer silk linen mix dress, which is just going to look absolutely spectacular. Oh, and so you do women's wear as well? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I do do women's wear. The main reason I don't have lots of women's wear about is simply because I've been testing things out on friends and testing the patterns and drafting systems out on friends of mine first, because I can test out male drafting systems on myself, no problem. I'm always there. Um, but, but with women's stuff, it's been a slower process, just because I wanted to get it right. Let's talk about the economics. So obviously... yeah. Your major input is your time, I would assume. And oh, yeah. The- well, yeah, and time just not in making stuff, but also in researching. That's right. a big, big thing. Anything that's bespoke or made for you, like a made-to-measure kitchen, you know, or a bespoke kitchen, that's not going to be as cheap as just buying a dishwasher or buying a washing machine, is it? Uh, you know, or buying your own countertop. It's that whole thing that anything that is so specific and personal and catered to you, like a bespoke wedding dress or a bespoke wedding suit, they're always going to be more expensive, especially when you take into account what I do is incredibly niche and the materials are expensive and, you know, everything adds up. But the way I see it is that it's a cost per wear basis in terms of hopefully this stuff will outlast you. That's the whole point. Think of clothes now. What's going to become vintage? What's going to survive to become vintage? Right. Certainly nothing I have. Yeah. I mean, it's all poorly designed and so inethically done that it's just not going to survive to end up being in those thrift stores in those charity shops and worn by a few people a few generations down. And I think that whole thing of that care of clothing and understanding is sort of slipping away a bit. Yeah, and that is something, by the way, that I think is a key part of the passion economy is pricing your products or services to allow for that because I think some people tend to undervalue the time they spend researching. And yes, I mean, if I get a waistcoat from you, yes, I'm paying you to do the actual physical work, but 
probably more valuable is that you've thought through all the issues you've told me about, which I find fascinating that, you know, how does the modern body mm-hmm. work? And and I'm assuming you're making, you know, there's things you're rejecting from the olden days and, and things you're highlighting. And <laughs> But my concern would be too strong a word, but my question would be is, can your business ultimately scale? Because you know, you're a sole practitioner, it sounds like. It's not like you can easily, you know, add a hundred expert tailors as your business grows. Like how mm, mm. how do you think about like let's say, you know, you Well, it is something I've had to really think about quite recently in terms of, you know, the BBC thing going quite viral, where worldwide just the BBC clip on the BBC things have had around thirty million views. So that's just a thing by itself, which is just daunting. But I think the next logical step and one I'm really looking into is a larger space, a larger space and having someone in a few days a week to do piecework in terms of I can say to them, right, I've I've cut out the sleeves and everything, right, sew those together or do those buttonholes and just takes out the stuff. The hardest thing with having made something yourself, built up a business by yourself, whatever business it might be, is then handing over your baby and being able to delegate. Yeah. It's the hardest thing because you can't help but be a control freak once you've done something yourself. So I think the next logical step is in terms of scaling up, getting sort of one person in, and then they'll actually, bizarrely enough, just taking out those menial tasks of sewing in that bit of lining. I think it will massively ramp up production just with another person doing the other things. There's probably a young you somewhere out in the world who's maybe watched that BBC video 27 times and Mm. might, you know, there's a reason there were more robust apprenticeship programs in the period Mm -hmm. that we're talking about because these were very customized skills and it took years to... So I I wouldn't be shocked if you eventually had an apprentice or two who probably would have been great for you if you had a you to to learn from when you were younger. (laughs) Yeah, no, exactly. Well, yeah, because part of the problem is, is that I'm sort of very self-taught, but I think having someone in that that's maybe had some sewing experience sort of get that sort of thing going, maybe then one or two, but it's that whole thing of, I think keeping it small, smaller scale allows the bespoke and boutique nature of it to be alluring. Yes. And it sounds like you've worked out a pretty good deal for yourself. Like you're not, you know, I would think that if you're able to make a reasonable living doing this, spending your time doing the thing you love most and talking with other people who love it as well, you yeah. know, I mean, it it wouldn't shock me if you didn't end up making a fair bit of money, but it sounds like, you know, there's a lot of people who work really hard at jobs they might not love that much so that on the weekends or whatever, they can probably some of your customers, they can do the mm. thing they oh, love. Yeah, yeah. And so you've worked out. Exactly. Yeah. And it's the whole thing of, I think everyone out there has got passions they'd love to pursue, but it's so hard because our economy and the whole way of life doesn't really allow you to. It's that whole thing of, in order to build up something you want to do, you need that time out to build it before you can actually do anything. And luckily, I mean, the, o- the, the only way I've been able to do this is just through extreme parental support whether that be, you know, driving me up to a silk mill so I can go to a fabric sale or, you know, helping out to start with anyway with sort of rent and things, um, you know, the financial side of things because being a young person in the economy is the worst thing ever. But it's that whole thing of what we need as a society is just to allow artists and artisanal things and crafts to 
actually be valued for what they are. And it's that whole thing of, oh, you just do sewing or, you know, oh, you're just doing such and such or such artistic endeavour. Okay, fine. Take away all those people that build such artistic endeavours and things like that and then see how well society looks. Yeah. I think we need to be careful or else there'll be a death of the artist. Yeah. The hero here is your dad. I mean, I dreamed that one day my son would talk (laughs) about me the way you talk about your dad. That's very beautiful. But I also think the smart parent... Like what your dad did was very loving and kind, but it was also, Mm. I think he understood something about this economy. I mean, I actually, I think what you're doing is more possible now because of all the things we talked about. Funnily enough, your ability to recreate historical clothing is possible because of modern technology that allows you to communicate with clients in New York, fly on an airplane. (laughs) You know, I remember reading about George Washington's endless letters to his London tailors complaining about how nothing had arrived. And Oh, I know, I know. (laughs) And, and, you know, he never met his tailors ever, you know, (laughs) so. Yeah, no, exactly. So modern technology has allowed, in many ways, like demanded that you I think, I mean, that's the whole point of this show called The Passion Economy, is that there's this passion opportunity now, uniquely in human history, I would say, for a larger number of people, not everybody. I mean, even though you grew up blue collar, you grew up with some privileges that not everyone has. Oh, God, yeah, 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 yeah. no, of course. No, I'm in an extremely privileged position. Yeah. Yeah, but I think far more people could live the passionate life you're living And that there's much more short-term risk, I would say, like on any given day, it's riskier. But long-term, I'd actually say honing your passion and really refining your passion makes you bulletproof in the long-term. Yes, yeah. And the thing you have to really sort of do with it is be genuine and never make it a gimmick. Yes. You know, and and people have said, oh, you just do it for attention. It's like, oh, please, I do this. Like, this is 24-7. It's not just me doing it for attention. You know, if I was doing it for attention, I'd do something that required a lot less time and effort. (laughs) Yeah. I I will Um, confess that when Lena, our producer, first sent me the link to the BBC interview, before it starts, there's an image of you. And my first instinct was, oh, this is a gimmick. This is a... And then literally the second you open your mouth, it's clear... Oh, no, this is a deep, this is who this man is in a a deep and rich (laughs) way. This is a deep psychosis. Yes, this Um. is a deep, this man needs help. Um, No, I mean, on the contrary, like if one were to go back in time and talk to you at 16 or something, you could imagine if you asked 100 people, maybe one of them would say, yes, you can turn this into a life. But you've done it. You've taken this very odd passion. Oh, it's terribly weird and terribly odd and very niche. Yes. And you're thriving. And that authenticity carries through. I mean, I was thinking how the very fact that in an authentic way you dress like this means that in an authentic way you are constantly advertising your business. And that is really just a happy accident. There are people that sort of make historical clothing for reenactment and things, but you wouldn't necessarily know it. But the thing is, it's the whole thing that I built up as a passion for myself and what I do. And then, oh my gosh, I can do it for other people as well. That's amazing. So the two sort of wonderfully coincided. The Passion Economy is a three Uncanny Four production. It's hosted by me, Adam Davidson, and produced by Lena Richards. Our music is composed and performed by Casey Halford. Our sound engineer is Gene Montalvo. 
Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. If you want to learn more about the theories in this podcast, check out my book, aptly named The Passion Economy. The show is recorded at the Yard in Gowanus, Brooklyn. 